Hello and welcome back to Axe Pod. My name is Brandon Shu and I'm the host of Axe Pod. Today we're talking to John Wackman of Nyland Johnson Lewis here in Minneapolis, and we're going to talk about the court system. That's right. So buckle your seatbelts because it's always exciting talking about courts. No, we're serious. We we actually think it will be exciting, but there's a lot going on right now politically and from the perspective of how the current makeup of the courts impacts businesses, we wanted to chat through and have a discussion about it. So we hope you enjoy the episode. Okay, Acts of Pod listeners, thanks for joining us on, uh, on another episode. We have John Wackman back from Nyland Johnson. John, how are you today? Good, good. How are you doing? Oh, I'm I'm doing pretty good. You know, it's been a busy couple of weeks, a lot going on in the government and election and everything else. So I think it's a good time to talk about what we're going to talk about today, which is the kind of the court system and, and where it's postured in uh, today's uh, political environment. John has his fingers on the pulse, if you will, of what's going on in the in the federal court system and the Supreme Court system. Obviously, everybody knows that we recently uh, appointed Amy Barrett to the Supreme Court in in the last in the last couple of weeks here, which gives President Trump his third appointee. Is that right? That's his third appointee. Yes. So it's just uh, really unprecedented in modern times. They have three appointees during a four year term. Right. You know, we want to talk today a little bit about, you know, what that means from a business standpoint and how the current makeup of the Supreme Court plays a role in future rulings and future business discussions. We're leaving politics aside here. I just want to clarify that none of our conversations here are are meant to be politically leaning in any way. We're, we're simply want to give our Council and our armchair expertise, you know, in terms of what we think the current makeup might mean for for business and litigation and you know rulings and risk management going forward. You know, I thought maybe we'd start with uh, some things that we have going on right off the bat here. You know, we have an ACA argument that just took place yesterday, right, John? Yeah, there was. It's I think about the third or fourth one we've had in the recent years under the Affordable Care Act. And somewhat surprisingly to some observers, both Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh sort of signaled they're unlikely to overturn uh, the ACA, which some people didn't see coming. But I think Justice Roberts, I think, voiced uh, that you know, if it's going to be overturned, it's the job of Congress, which, you know, was attempted and then it, it didn't uh, succeed a couple of years ago. I think John McCain cast the sort of the deciding vote in the Supreme Court really doesn't want to apparently get in and say the whole thing's overturned. Maybe they'll nibble at the edges like they have done in the past. But the division between the legislative and the, and the judicial branch, and they think it's the job of the legislature to overrule the thing if that's what they want to do. And and so far, they haven't been able to, to do that. I, I've been paying attention to it, you know, as much as I can from kind of a layman's perspective. But it, it sounds like this was looking at the, the balance of the law, right? So they had already removed, did they already remove the mandate? And now they were looking at the, the rest of the law? Or how did, how did that conversation take place? Yeah, you know, the details of exactly what they're they're looking at as far as, as what's remaining is is not entirely clear to me. I haven't studied exact all the briefs and things like that, but I do know they were attempting to go after the entire law. You know, to they've already taken out the, the mandate portion and now it's 
uh, can we take out the rest of it? And it, their clear signal from the justices yesterday that they're not going to do that. In some form or another, it's going to survive. How they craft that is, is unclear, but you know it's going to be up to the legislature to do away with it if that's what the legislature wants to do. Yeah, I actually heard a recording on, on the radio yesterday, and Alito, of all people who, from what I understand, is one of the more conservative justices, used the analogy of an airplane when, when he was talking about the law. And he basically said, you know, when, we, when you came in here and discussed previously the mandate for health care under the mandate for the population that you need health care, he said it was kind of an instrumental piece where the airplane couldn't operate without it. It's been two years or however long it's been since the mandate was removed. And he said, since that time, the airplane has been flying perfectly well. And now you want to come in and remove the rest of the law. And Roberts and Alito you know, basically echoed each other when they said, it's not our job to do that. That's the job of the Congress. We're, we're simply here to tell you whether the law is constitutional or not. And so it was, it was kind of an interesting change or reversal. But it, I guess from a an originalist, you know, discussion, it kind of makes sense why they would rule that way, too. Yeah, I mean, I think it makes good sense. I mean, judges often get criticized for, quote unquote, making law, you know, and they're, they, people criticize and say you should interpret the law and not make it. Sort of the argument here was we want you to sort of unmake the law and consistent with the notion they shouldn't be, you know, making law, they should be interpreting it. I think that's what the where the justices are coming down. If you want us the law not to exist, that's your job, not ours. And, right. and so that's really consistent with sort of that judicial ideology that you shouldn't make law, you should just interpret it. And, and it's really the flip of that. And I think that's where they're coming down. Right. To break it down, I guess, from a very high level, this means that unless the ruling, the eventual ruling is inconsistent with kind of the arguments or the timbre of the discussion yesterday it sounds like pre-existing conditions are going to continue to be covered under the ACA. You know, that was the bulk of the conversation, I think, going into the 2020 election was are pre-existing conditions going to be covered for people, particularly now that we ha- we're under a pandemic and you could argue that COVID-19 is a pre-existing issue. So, you know, I would say a, a big decisive victory for the people wanting pre-existing conditions covered in this case. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the fact that the law appears like it's going to continue on is certainly a big victory for that side of the of the issue. And I mean, it, and it's also kind of dovetails with the issue of the new Supreme Court makeup with Justice Coney Barrett being on. I mean, I think some people were thinking, well, this is the best chance. She was part of the argument yesterday. And and now with her appointment, we're we're on six Republican justices and three Democrats. And so the makeup, you know, previously for, for several years has been five, four Republican with Justice Roberts sort of being uh, the swing vote, sometimes siding more of the Democrats, sometimes more of the Republicans. And now with the six, three, you know, there is the thought, well, this might be different, but it doesn't appear that it's going to be different. It does seem like Roberts has been ruling. I don't, I don't know if it's a legacy question or, or what, but he, he does seem to be very guided by not having some sort of dynamic swing in terms of how the, you know, the court is being used here. He, he does seem to have a very conscientious approach to 
how he is ruling in, in some of these situations. Yeah, I mean, he's you know gone out uh, a number of times to to mention that judges are judges, not Republican judges, or not Democrat judges, and the same with justices. They're justices and not the court isn't a, a political body. And, and people believe he's been trying to feather that line to make sure that, you know, the court, which is called the Roberts Court because he's the chief justice, is not remembered as being overly political, but, but more, you know, deciding the uh, cases as they see fit and not entirely along political lines. Well, let's talk about the, you know, the big news, obviously, since the election was called for Biden and Harris. And in the kind of the midst of this victory, you know, uh, the Trump campaign has filed a number of lawsuits, as I understand it, in Pennsylvania, Arizona, Nevada, Michigan, too. And it seems like they're they're all fairly in line with one another, but they seem to have be very targeted in terms of a select number of votes. Is that right? Yeah, that's, I mean, there, there's been a flurry of them, so it's a little hard to know even how many, because some have been uh, filed and now already dismissed and things like that. But it does appear that most of them have been targeted at distinct groups of ballots. And the issue that you read about is if the number of ballots at issue isn't sufficient to overturn the majority in favor of Biden in a particular state, it's sort of irrelevant. And so there's been some discussion going back to what we're just talking about is whether this will end up in front of the Supreme Court. And like like happened in the Bush-Gore issues back in 2000. And there, I mean, we're down to a couple hundred ballots of one state and whoever won that state was going to win. I mean, that was a critical issue and that's why it ended up with the Supreme Court. Here, unless we can get to a tipping point where if the Trump campaign wins some of these issues, they could actually win the state and win enough states to overturn the election. It's really unlikely, in my opinion, that the Supreme Court would want to wade in just for the reason we threw we're talking about in that they don't want to be seen as overly political. And if their decision isn't going to impact the election, they will likely just allow the uh, lower court's decisions to stand. We're in a situation here where it's so stratified. I mean, we have four or more states that are at this point decisively counted towards Biden. I mean, even in you know Nevada and, you know, we have at least 10,000, a 10,000 vote lead where you said, you know, Florida back in 2000, I think there was five, it was a 500 vote difference between Gore and Bush. Here we're talking about tens of thousands. I think that the aggregate sum of the states that he's ahead in the aggregate count of the specific states is like 240,000 votes. And the total makeup of the, the ballot challenges, so to speak, that the Trump campaign has waged is, you know, in the single thousand digits. I mean, so it's not even, it, it doesn't appear to be even close in terms of if, if he even won the charges. It, it, you know, again, we don't want to be, you know, po- politically leaning here, but it, it does seem like a, a moot attempt to simply remain engaged by the Trump campaign. Yeah, I mean, for example, one of the lawsuits they brought in Arizona was involved something called overvoting, where there were some marks on the ballot that would suggest uh, two candidates were voted. For. And so they pull those out and, and people can either, and I, there's some issue whether they were allowed to 
to redo their ballots when they should have been counted. But just the other day, the attorney from the state of Arizona said, you know, the entire allotment of that is 180 ballots. Some of those undoubtedly would have gone for President Trump and some would, would likely go for for Biden. And so, you know, even of the 180, there's probably going to be some split. And 180 is a pretty small number of ballots to be fighting about. There have been some attempts to broaden the arguments. For example, in Pennsylvania, they've, they've got a lawsuit that says sort of the entire voting by mail was improper. Obviously, that would, there's millions of votes in Pennsylvania by mail, as we all saw in the counting process. So if, if they were successful, that would, would certainly change the results there. But it also would be really unprecedented to disenfranchise all these people who voted by mail. So, I mean, that's an argument, for example. Particularly that, since there's not just one election on the ballot. There's multiple tens, dozens of elections where people are voting by mail to, you know, select their candidate, which, you know, voting by mail has been a methodology used, you know, for a long time. And now you're talking about a pandemic where, you know, the, the safety of, of people and the question of whether they're contracting a virus or not could come down to whether or not they voted in person or by mail. I mean, it's it seems pretty illogical to me. Yeah, I mean, I think it's Oregon and I believe it's Oregon and Utah that's all voting by mail. So, you know, if you extend that argument then you say, well, those states didn't even have an election. And and like you said, even in Pennsylvania, there's down ballot. You know, I mean, it impacts the legislature in the state of Pennsylvania dramatically. So it would seem illogical. I mean, the best uh, and most interesting one that I've seen is Pennsylvania had a rule that you your ballot had to be in by the election day. That was right. a legislative rule. And the state attorney general said, well, given the pandemic, we're going to say it's got to be within three days after the election. And there's a lawsuit challenging that. And, and there's a debate as to who sets the rules. And typically it is the legislature. But I just heard today that the total number of ballots that came in after Election Day that were counted was 10,000. And so right now, Biden has, you know, 45 to 50,000 vote leads. So even even in that one, which seems to be a very colorful argument, you know, something that, you know, it's an interesting how you resolve it, given the pandemic and the tendency to allow legislatures to set the rules, how you come out on that one. Given that it's a 10,000, it's not going to be enough to sway the election. Yeah, it would seem to be an uphill battle to suggest that those votes shouldn't be counted when the local election officials said that, you know, ahead of time that they should. So, how, you know, how do you how do you, you know, articulate an argument against that cause when, you know, the, the voters had you know, been suggested to that, you know, these these votes would be counted and there'd be no reason why they wouldn't be able to send them a day or two late. So there, there's a notion you don't want to disenfranchise people. And if they played by the rules as they were articulated to them as of the, the day of the election, whether you really want to not count their votes. But even right. even if you do, it doesn't appear to be enough that it's going to ultimately matter. You know, it's definitely an interesting situation. Hopefully it's resolved soon. Obviously, these you know, the United States is a kind of under a magnifying glass in terms of you know, our standing in the world and, you know, our, and that has a big impact on the stability of our dollar, you know, and everything else. So, you know, we obviously want uh, confidence throughout 
the world and throughout the United States in our political system. So it's definitely an interesting conversation. That's why some of these other states are, are important, like Georgia and Arizona. I mean, on last weekend, you know, it was a, it was a, when Pennsylvania was called for Biden. You know, he was sort of not, you know, acknowledged as the president-elect. But if Arizona and Georgia don't come out in his favor, then, you know, he really has to have Pennsylvania. And, and so that's why if they can get traction on a Pennsylvania lawsuit, the, the Trump candidacy, then then there's a chance to flip it. But if you have to flip Pennsylvania and Georgia and Arizona, it starts to seem, you know, highly unlikely such that, you know, it may resolve quicker than, than it otherwise appears to be. Right. Well, let's talk about the kind of the overall makeup of the federal court system and kind of your world. The Trump administration has appointed, it looks like about 220 judges in his first term in office, which I think is far more than any other president has in their first term, at least. Yeah, it's, I think it's, you know, a good 30 to 40, almost 50 percent more than typical first terms. And, and just for a perspective, in the entire federal judiciary, counting the Supreme Court, the various courts of appeals out there, and then the district court judges, which are, you know, the most of them, there's about 800. So he's appointed well over a quarter of the entire federal judiciary in during his four-year period term. You know, using Robert's theory as an example, you know, judges are judges, they're not politicians. However, the administration certainly appoint these judges for reasons that may have political consequences. But as as we talk about business and law, what do you normally see in terms of rulings, you know, and how they interact with the business community? I mean, are are there more favorable rulings generally that occur for, you know, conservative leaning judges versus liberal leaning judges? That is the general rule of thumb. And just as a general, even more general rule, federal courts tend to be more conservative than state courts. So businesses, you know, almost without fail, prefer to be in uh, federal court than they do in state court, in, in part because the federal judges are lifetime appointments and they are much more inclined to adhere to the, the rules of of civil procedure and the processes. And so they're more comfortable throwing cases out than they would in state court. I mean, you know, that doesn't mean that's the case for every judge, but if you want to do just rules of thumb, companies prefer to be in uh, federal court. And the fact that President Trump is appointed now over a quarter of the bench, you know, it's going to continue to be that way. And, and so people know, I mean, judges, like we've seen with the Supreme Court justices that he's appointed during his term, they tend to be relatively young. So a federal court appointment, whether it's the Supreme Court or, or uh, lower courts, judges get appointed are young. So they're there for, you know, oftentimes decades. And so though that has a big impact on the judiciary going forward, these uh, judges that President Trump's appointed will be there for a long, long time. As the other presidents in the, in the past, they all do the same thing. So they, you know, that's why the court appointments are such a big political issue because the judges stay for a long time. So whoever gets on there will stay. You know, for example, with the the U.S. Supreme Court, there, as we all know, there's nine justices. Next term, if Biden is the president, there's uh, there's likely at most be one justice 
change. And that's Justice Stephen Breyer's 82. He was appointed by Bill Clinton, so he's Democrat-leaning already, so that probably doesn't change the composition. And he may, he may not retire. I mean, he's 82. We, we've seen judges last, you know, in their late 80s now. But of the justices, he's the most likely to retire at some point. And the next oldest is Clarence Thomas, who we're all familiar with Clarence Thomas and his proceedings but that's a long time ago. He's been on the bench 29 years, but he's still only 72. So he was a pretty uh, relatively young man when he was appointed. And, and, you know, absent some health issue, you would expect him to stay on the bench through at least the next four years, if not another 10 to 12. And then after that, they're all younger than that. So, so there's only going to probably be one at most turn, uh, change in the next four years. This is probably opening up a whole other can of worms, but given what happened with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, there was a lot of suggestion back in Obama's term that she should have retired and allowed for you know an appointment to occur under the Obama administration. I don't expect this will happen anytime soon, and maybe not even in my lifetime, but is there a call for or any discussion around age? limits for federal and Supreme Court justices? Well, there have certainly been calls and suggestions for something like that to be put in place, but I don't think there's been any have gotten any traction at all. I mean, in, in many state courts, there are such age restrictions. For example, in Minnesota, where we live, it's age 70. So, and, and lots of the federal judges and, and justices are, are in place long beyond 70. And every few years that issue comes up, should we put sort of the age limits for federal judges, but it's never gotten any real traction. You know, it seems like a germane topic just simply based on the, you know, you see CEOs of publicly traded companies, you know, they have age limits that they have to deal with. I mean, it's it's not a secret that when we get older, you know, our our ability to reason and think, you know, might diminish a little bit. So it does seem like something uh, categorically might improve the process there. It is a very political issue, so I'm, I'm sure it's going to take an act of an act of Congress, an act of God to uh, get that to ever happen. Well, and given that our candidates for president were what seventy-eight yeah. and seventy-five, I don't yeah. think you know it's a real ripe issue right now. Right, I mean, right, yeah, touche for sure. I definitely think that the composition of the court on non-social business issues, you know, might have businesses excited about that, at least for the for the foreseeable future. How about, you know, you mentioned that the federal court system is generally more conservative. And I sat through a number of trials in my time at Gorilla Ladders as well. And I, we were certainly of the mindset that removing cases to federal court was the preferred posturing, you know, number one, it's it's more expensive. So it's the plaintiff side has to commit to that. Number two, the, the calendar is shorter. You know, federal court systems tend to expedite things a lot more than state courts do, where they can just linger and sit out there forever. And the federal court system is kind of put on this calendar and kind of goes hand in hand with the expenses of the case and making sure that the plaintiff side, you know, really wants to commit to going to trial or at least going through a large portion of litigation before to make that sort of investment. But what was always kind of an unknown to me was the verdicts 
in federal court, do we tend to get a better jury pool and or verdict result in, in federal court? And by better, I mean better for, for corporations. Are we, are we seeing bigger verdicts in state court or federal court? I think you get better verdicts as well in federal court, in part because the, you know, the, the judges are stricter on the sort of evidence that can come in. It's, it's just there's much more of a free-for-all in state court. And so right. as a result, you can get things in front of a jury that you might not be able to get in federal court. That's certainly not the rule, but it does happen. And that's why it's harder to get cases dismissed short of a trial. Once you get to a trial, it's a little bit more free-for-all where it's a lot less certain what the result will be. And then, you know, the big concern for any corporate defendant is punitive damages. And punitive damages has been a lot of case law on on those uh, issues that are in federal court much more tethered to the underlying verdict. So the sort of crazy punitive damage that you you hear about really doesn't happen in federal court. If they do happen, then the judges will step in and cut them down. And those rules do apply in state court, but it's not a hard and fast rule. So you're likely to get a bigger punitive damage verdict in a state court proceeding than in a, a federal court, which is another reason a corporation, if it all goes bad for them, they'd still rather be in federal court than in state court. Yeah, just to remind folks, what are generally the qualifiers for a corporate defendant to get into federal court, to be removed to federal court? Right. There's there's really two bases. One is there's got to be a federal question. So if the, the, the lawsuit brings a claim under federal law, which is what you see a lot in employment litigation, that's why a lot of employment litigation happens in federal court, because there's federal employment laws that apply. The other one is diversity jurisdiction. And what that means is the plaintiff and the defendant have to be from different states. So the corporation, for example, the corporation is from California and the plaintiff is from Texas, then you can go to federal court with the exception if you file in the jurisdiction where the corporation is, then they can't remove it. So and the reason being, the whole entire purpose of that is that avoid a corporation or a citizen with the diversity defendant from being hometown, you know, that, hey, it's unfair to make them go into state court in a place where they are located. Let's go to federal court to make sure that they don't get hometown. So if, the, if you bring the lawsuit where the corporation exists, they're unlikely at hometown because it's their hometown. So that's why you don't get to remove it in those circumstances. But if they are different states, and it applies to all defendants. So if you plaintiff sues five different corporations from five different states, they have to be di- diverse from all of them, not just you know your client. Makes sense. I think we covered a lot of ground here today. I appreciate you coming back and visiting us on Axe Pod, and we'll, we'll see how this all plays out over the next, hopefully, short time with respect to the election lawsuits. But maybe we can recap for our view viewers next time we get together and talk about uh, the results of all this. Well, fingers crossed that the next time we talk, we at least will know who the president is. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for having me again. I appreciate it. Thank you, John. All right. Thanks for tuning into the pod this week. We hope you enjoyed our little analysis on what's happening in the judicial system. Tune in next time. We thank you for listening. Check us out on axopod.com or check us out on iTunes 
for more episodes. Thank you.